This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live pictures from Tuscaloosa, Alabama on the night before. Four Republicans make their closing arguments as the political world descends on the University of Alabama. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television tonight from the quad on football Saturdays. The quad fills with students ready for kickoff. And tomorrow night, there will be a battle worthy of any SEC football game. Today, the candidates spent the day on the road. Ron DeSantis in Florida talking about the one man who won't be here tomorrow night. Get out of your dungeon, get off the keyboard, stand on the debate stage, and, and let's go. Uh, let's go do it. Uh, I don't think he will do it because I don't think he can stand there for two hours um, against me and come out on top. Vivek Ramaswamy believes Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. Well, Ramaswamy thinks Haley stole his momentum, and now he wants it back. Well, she's called me four-letter words in each of the last two debates, so I would advise her to expand her vocabulary if she wants to come anywhere near the White House. Mm -hmm. Chris Christie in New Hampshire, also attacking Nikki Haley whose surge, especially in the past couple of weeks, is changing the dynamic of this race. I have people here with microphones, but you know who they go to? They go to the person I call on, who raises their hand. You know what happens at the Nikki Haley town halls? Her people pick who is going to give the question. I wonder how they know. <laughs> I wonder how they know. Because every question turns out to be really friendly. Nikki Haley was in New Hampshire as well. The population there is her best shot for a surprise finish, maybe even an upset before her home state of South Carolina. We're not talking about 1950s spending levels. We're talking about just four years ago. We had a massive and in many ways a foolish explosion in spending during the pandemic. But the pandemic is over. It's absurd to keep spending at those same crazy levels. We are 41 days from the Iowa caucuses. And then eight days after that comes New Hampshire. Reasonable people can agree. For the Republicans not named Donald Trump left in this race, the four who will be on the stage tomorrow night, it's win or go home, just like the college football playoffs. One of these four, must beat Donald Trump in either Iowa or New Hampshire for us to have a ball game. So the stakes couldn't be higher. The night before the big debate, the political spotlight is now here at the University of Alabama, much like the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz. Each candidate comes to the debate looking for something different. Ron DeSantis needs to be liked and fix his smile problem. Nikki Haley needs to convince the MAGA crowd she isn't another neoconservative and get Trump voters to trust her. Easier said than done. Vivek Ramaswamy needs to find his mojo again. And Chris Christie needs to make his campaign about something other than hating Donald Trump. Here now, RNC national 
Convention Chairman David Bossy. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. Beautiful place here. here. What a great place for a debate. Roll tight. There we go. That's the one thing everybody can agree on, right? <laughs> That's right. You'll hear that a lot tomorrow. All right. Um, who has the most to win and lose tomorrow night? Oh, boy. Each of the four of them have something. Uh, they all want to win. Let me right. put it to you that way. You, as, as you just said in your open, 41 days. Uh, so, so 40 days from tomorrow night, people are going to be voting in, in Iowa. They all want to be able to stand out. They all want to be able to separate themselves from the others on the stage. The problem is, is the the, the person who is not there, Donald Trump, uh, is the shadow over uh, all of them. And they have a hard time getting out of it, out of his shadow on one hand uh, uh, while they're trying to separate themselves and also not alienating mm. his supporters on the other hand. And it is it's the polling shows for the last year. Thing. It's very difficult. All right. So you've got everybody trying to have their breakout moment in one way or another. And often that is in, involved just attacking each other. We saw Vivek Ramaswamy uh, lead the attacks against Nikki Haley in the last debate. Take a listen. That's the choice we face. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first? Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage tonight. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just easy Now, if you look where we are now, it's a lot different than we were in 2016. And Donald Trump's a lot different guy than he was in 2016. Does the Republican Party, and I include Donald Trump in this, have a grievance problem? In that it's very easy for everybody to talk about what they're against, what they're angry about. There's very little conversation about what people are for and how they're going to change the country for the better. Well, I, I agree with that. I, I think that when we are talking about each other and candidates are talking about each other and not how we're going to defeat Joe Biden and this enormous problem that we have with our economy, the failed policies of the Biden administration, the left-wing lurch that this country has taken over the last three years. If we're not talking about those things, we're losing uh, as a party. And so I urge all of them to be talking about the failures of Joe Biden and his party, because we don't we don't need four more years of Joe Biden. So I, I just urge all of them to come together at some point here. We're gonna, I know it's a, it's a tall order, uh, and, and, and I know we, we kind of chuckle about it, but we all have to, at some point, we're going to have to come together and move past this. There is this part of the Republican Party that I think is something even that surprised people like you who have been there for a long time, this populist, very angry wing of the Republican Party. Vivek Ramaswamy talked about it. Uh, at the last debate when she went after, uh, when he went after not only the moderators, but the RNC chairwoman. Take a listen. At the end of the day, there's a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020, 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. I'm not sure yielding your time to somebody not on the stage is in the debate rules, but does he have a point in that there is a part of the Republican Party or part of people who consider themselves Republicans who share his anger and feelings? 
Certainly I do, and I know Ronna McDaniel does as well, the, the chair of the RNC. We want to do they everything They share their we can. anger at, at Ronna well, McDaniel? Well, no, no, no. The, she shares the anger that we all feel. We want the, uh, the, the base of our party to have more say. We're tired of the establishment running the show. Uh, and so we, I can tell you right now, I have been fighting for years, right, for years against the status quo and trying to get the grassroots to be part of it. Ronna came from the grassroots. I'm not here to defend it, but I can tell you, uh, Vivek, was, Vivek was way out of line. I'll just be honest with you. I, I like him a lot, but he was way out of line for doing that. Have you guys that. had and a conversation tech, about tomorrow night in that sense? No. It's, it, look, I'm not going to try to talk to somebody. Uh, it, it, I, I mean, I've talked to him, and I'm happy to talk to him some more. I'm not going to try to tell him what to do or say. He can do whatever he wants, and, and Rana has that same position. But I can just tell you. It's not, it's not a place for that. We can all have our disagreements, but we all have to work together for one goal, and that's to beat Joe Biden. And when you're doing that, you're not helping that cause. All right, well, we will see if anybody was watching tonight and takes your admonition uh, <laughs> to, to be positive and look forward um, rather than backward. David, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, congratulations in advance on a great event. Well, thank we're, you. You guys are going to do great. Well, we're proud to be a part of it. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Kevin McAllister of Home Alone, who was one of my personal heroes growing up. He taught us a lot about life, but looking back, and it's hard to imagine this, 33 years since that famed trip to Paris, Kevin could teach us something about this election coming up. At one point in the movie Home Alone, he found 20 bucks, I think in his older brother's footlocker. And then he went to the grocery store. Are those microwave dinners any good? I don't know. I'll give him a whirl. For the kids. Hold on, I got a coupon for that. It was in the paper this morning. 1983. All right, 33 years later, and remember, this was a Christmas movie, a TikToker, first decent thing that's ever happened on TikTok, recreated Kevin's grocery list. 60, 68 bucks after your coupon today, guys. That's how much it cost in 2023. 33 years is a long time, but the shock of prices is real. Kevin's explanation sort of explains how we all feel. And that's 33 years ago. But let's just talk about the same groceries bought in January of 2020 cost $20 more in October of this year, $15.56 more if we go through the receipt. And people aren't happy about it. So much so that it could sway the elections in 2024. News Nation Decision Desk HQ polling, inflation is the biggest concern facing voters today. Way more than unemployment, immigration, or crime. With us now, Liberty Vitter, host of MIT's Data Science Podcast, and Scott Trainer, Director of Data Science for Decision Desk HQ. Great to be in Alabama, University of Alabama, beautiful, beautiful set. Um, Scott, picking up on what David Bossy was talking about, yeah, people are upset about in- inflation. It's one thing to talk about what people are angry about. To win their votes, do you have to give them something to be excited about? Yeah, no, you've got to give them something excited about for change. I mean, in inflation, you can do both. You can say, hey, look, this is bad for the economy. This is bad for you. 
but I can do something about gas prices or I can do something about grocery prices. It can be both sides. And I think that's what one of these candidates is going to have to do, because you know what? Inflation is a bipartisan issue. Not only do Republicans think it's the number one issue, so do independents and so do Democrats. All right. Stay with you for one second on this. The one polling question that I know you always look at, this person, this candidate cares about people like me. At least in the past three debates that I've watched, speaking to that poll question seems to be sorely lacking. Yeah. No, a lot of these candidates are, 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 are looking to get the soundbite, whether it's, you know, Donald Duck or whether it's going after what someone's footwear is. They're doing less about building themselves up or at least making themselves more likable. I think that's largely to do with, you know, the front runner who doesn't look like they're going to be at the debate tomorrow isn't there. So they're jockeying for second. But, yeah, there's not a whole lot of making these candidates likable among themselves or the electorate. Yeah, in, in speaking, speaking to the Chinese shining city on the hill that we all aspire to, Liberty, um, the survey of uh, 2,100 Americans age 18 to 29, professor at Washington University, among other schools, um, who's going to be a better job, uh, do a better job on a variety of issues, the Israel-Hamas war, climate change, gun violence, Ukraine, crime and public safety, um, who wins is neither. Well, here's what needs to happen. Young people... Uh, it's very easy to get them to vote against something. It's going to be very easy to get them to vote against Biden. But trying to get them to vote for something, as both of you guys said, one of these four people needs to convince them that they are going to do a better job at these things than Trump. And good luck with that. When you say good luck with doing a better job than Trump, is that because you can have the old, are you better off now or than you were four years ago? Exactly. And people feel like the economy was better four years ago. People feel like things were way better under Trump. And really, it's going to become a question of whether it's your heart or your mind, right? Do they dislike Trump more than they like money in their pocketbooks or perceived money in their pocketbooks? How much, Scott, is this, this strategy by Trump of not showing up to the debates helping him in that even though he doesn't necessarily like it, when he's out of the news cycle, he does better. Yeah, he does better. I mean, look, in our most recent national poll that we did together with News Nation, he's sitting there with, you know, 60% of the general electorate, or I'm sorry, the Republican vote. You know, if he was going to lose anything, we would have seen it the last two or three, three times. So we, we should see that strategy not work, but it has been working, and it looks like he's probably going to continue out. One other point, you know, you bring out inspiration for some of these candidates. We've seen it since 2016. Usually the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee have had underwater approval ratings. We saw that in our most recent poll here. Both Joe Biden has an underwater approval rating and so does President Trump. The voters are looking for someone they can be inspired by and they can at least like from a majority standpoint. We haven't seen that in a while. Real quick, Liberty, uh, which do you think is a bigger problem facing America? Inflation, unemployment, immigration, and crime. Is inflation becoming a proxy simply for how I feel about the economy in the same way education became a proxy for Glenn Youngkin going after uh, racial issues and trans issues in schools? Absolutely. We've seen it time and time again. That is what we mean by the economy. It's how people feel when they go, when, when Kevin McAllister goes and buys groceries. I did not steal $20 from you when we were kids. But you would have. What I if I had $20, you would have stolen it from me. But it's, it's how you feel when you leave the grocery store and people feel poor. And that is what they see as the economy, regardless of how any economist wants to describe the economy. The dollar menu is not the dollar menu anymore. It's just killing me.
Yeah. This is serious. This is a serious yeah. grievance you have. Yeah, it you is. You brought this it up is. before. All right. Yeah. Um, it'll be a lot of fun to watch the next couple of days with you guys uh, and get some of the polling back and some of the issues that matter most. We'll talk to you soon. 24 hours away from News Nation's debate, moderated by our own Elizabeth Vargas, Sirius XM Megan Kelly, Elliot and Johnson of the Washington Free Beacon, 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. Chris Cuomo and I bring you the pregame show. It's kind of like an SEC battle out here. At 6 p.m. Coming up next, we spent nearly $100 billion saving Ukraine. We haven't exactly saved it, and now nobody wants to talk about it or what happened to the money. How Ukraine went from the moral issue of our time to a political loser. And the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT get grilled over their embrace of pro-Hamas protesters, George Will, with what's really happening on college campuses up north. I can only imagine how terrifying it is to be a Jewish woman on any of your campuses. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa on a gorgeous December night. A campus made famous by Bear Bryant and Nick Saban. We bring in Stuart Bell, president of the University of Alabama. Uh, And Dr. Bell here has brought me a University of Alabama pin I don't normally take sides here on the program, but, you know, you guys are going to win the college football national championship. Might as well get on the winning side early, right? I like that. There we go. All right. Uh, Tell us why hosting this. Alabama's famous for a lot of reasons. Why is hosting this important? Well, certainly uh, we are honored to be hosting the the debate and, you know, having just the opportunity to be on a campus. And I think one of the things we really do well at universities is to provide opportunities for our students and you guys have been so gracious. You all have involved a number of our students in this, so they get to actually see it come together. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a really unique opportunity for our students, for our campus, but really to have candidates come in and discuss the issues that are important to our community, but also important to the nation. It's, it's good for the students to see. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and look, um, it's a ni- nice thing to do, and when you say nice things about us, you get to spend as much time talking as you want. Um, University of Alabama, obviously, in the news because you're hosting tonight's debate. Uh, there's been a little bit of other news that the University of Alabama has been in this week, perhaps being selected in the college football playoffs uh, over another team whose name we shall not name on television. They are not very good. They're in the ACC. It doesn't really matter. But uh, any predictions for the college football playoffs coming up? You know, we're so uh, just so proud of our, our coach, as, as you yeah. mentioned, the team. Um, we had a, a great awards banquet on Sunday night. We were able to, to really lift up the team and for all that they've accomplished. And, and so we're just proud to, to be a part of that and certainly to be selected as one of the four. Um, and we're what looking hope, forward to be on the road. What, what do you hope students here take away from tonight, tomorrow night's debate? I think that uh, they can see that uh, universities in particular are, are that place where you can have these open debates of critical issues. And, and certainly we're all part of this great country and we have to be informed uh, for those issues so that we're able to get to the uh, position that we need to in order, in order to cast a vote, in order to really understand the issues. And I hope our students are an active participant 
in that. Well, and it's nice to see a university supporting that conversation, be it on the Republican side, the Democratic side. It's, uh, it's inspiring. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. We appreciate it. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Uh, it will be a cold winter, literally, in Kiev, Ukraine. In the past few months, Ukraine went from the moral issue of our time to now a political loser. And yet the White House says we must give the country more money. Per the Wall Street Journal, the White House warns, quote, without additional money, the U.S. won't have the necessary resources to procure additional weapons and equipment for Ukraine or to provide resources from existing U.S. military stockpiles. U.S. military stockpiles are now dwindling. If that isn't clear enough, here is the president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. A vote against supporting Ukraine is a vote to improve Putin's strategic position. That's just an inescapable reality. That's not speaking to someone's motive, why they chose to vote against it. That's just speaking to the outcome of their vote. A vote against supplemental funding for Ukraine will hurt Ukraine and help Russia. The problem is nobody cares. Ukraine is a loser politically, and it's not doing that much better on the battlefield against Vladimir Putin. 18 months ago, senators and congressmen wore American Ukraine flag pins to show support. Now the Senate's most hawkish Republican and dovish Democrat have had enough. I am deeply concerned that this legislation has no investments to address the needs of working families in the United States. I will not vote for any aid until we secure our own border. Reform asylum, reform, reform parole is possible to do. Democrats don't want to do it. All Republicans want to do it. I'm not helping Ukraine until we help ourselves. With us now, White House columnist for our partners at The Hill here in Alabama to cover the debate, Niall Standage. Niall, it's good to see you. How did this issue morph so drastically in 18 months? I think one reason was the reason alluded to by the two senators there, the need for more spending or at least other priorities at home. But the second point, Leland, is if you're asking taxpayers for that enormous amount of money, you have to answer some pretty basic questions. Will there be an end to it? What's the plan to achieve victory? Is there any evidence that that victory can be achieved? There aren't convincing answers to any of those questions. And is it working? Did the White House stake so much of their foreign policy uh, agenda for their first term on supporting Ukraine unconditionally? And as you point out, without an articulable goal or a way to bring this to an end, do you think they regret perhaps going so far all in so quickly? I think they feel they had to do that. And as you know, there is a a completely different critique, which is they didn't go all in fast enough, and that led to a prolongation of the war. I think that it is, though, a very difficult political issue. You look at the polls, there aren't a whole lot of Americans who want increased aid, and the numbers who want it decreased keep ticking further and further up. What I think is interesting, though, and this seems to be a metaphor for a lot of issues of this White House, for the issue of the divide in the Democratic Party, party over over Hamas and over the Palestinians issue and moral clarity uh, for certain other uh, divides in the Democratic Party, be it on abortion and other things. The White House kind of seems to think it can straddle Mm. the divides even inside the Democratic Party. 
And every time they do that, they lose. Right. And I think in the Israel situation, it's much worse because that's just a wound right up the middle of the Democratic Party. And the president has recently been trying to temper his rhetoric. And that has not brought the Democratic Party together. It has left the more pro-Israel Democrats and the more pro-Palestinian Democrats equally dissatisfied. Joe Biden in 2020 ran against Donald Trump. That was, he sort of allowed you to paint whatever he wanted. And in the Senate, he was known for compromise all the time. You think about now how the White House is trying to handle the trans issue, uh, trying to handle abortion, whatever, whatever the issue of the day is, uh, how to handle immigration. Is there any thought that if the president is going to continue running for re-election, he needs to find issues that he can take a firm stand on because they did on Ukraine and are now having to walk it back? I don't know what those issues would be. I think that's the problem. There are these sort of vexing topics, be it Ukraine, be it Israel, be it all sorts of domestic topics. Where can the common ground be found? That's the danger for the White House, that they don't... Or is it the president's job to create the common ground? Yeah, but on what topic, though? That's the thing. Well, that, that's why he has the power of persuasion. Wasn't that the, wasn't that the great Richard Newstat line? It's good to see you, my good friend. You. Thank you very much. Coming up next... The ever-evolving definition of free speech on college campuses, where Jewish lives may not matter as much as others. What action has been taken against students who are harassing and calling for the genocide of Jews on Harvard's campus? I can assure you, we have robust What actions have been taken? The MIT administration has failed to enforce its own rules on anti-Semitic actors. In what world is a call for violence against Jews protected speech, but a belief that sex is biological and binary isn't? Hmm. Presidents of the most prestigious universities in America had to answer on Capitol Hill today why their campuses have become hotbeds of anti-Semitism. Calling it anti-Semitism is a little bit like calling Ebola a cold, but we'll use that term. The presidents from the University of Pennsylvania, MIT, and Harvard. All, well, they're used to having their every word followed and not be questioned. And then, well, here's what happens when they got some hard questions. Do you believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish nation? I agree that the state of Israel has the right to exist. It's important. The words matter. The president of Harvard would only use the word state and excluded the word Jewish. And since October 7th, these colleges and universities have been witnessed, well, and been overrun at times by scenes like these. Israel is worse than Nazi Germany. George Will, senior News Nation contributor, is with us now. I, I just can't seem to understand why universities that in 2020 had such a different worldview about uh, the need to create safe spaces and the need to protect their students are now so uninterested in protecting students who are facing calls for their murder. Uh, Leland, these... Fancy universities have dug a deep hole and fallen right into it. In 1967, when the universities were convulsed by opposition to the Vietnam War, 
Students at the University of Chicago demanded that the university take a position on the war. The university responded with the Calvin Report saying, we are not here to tell people what to think, but how to think, and we are not going to, as an institution, take a stand. Fast forward half a century. A few years ago, Yale University was convulsed by disturbances over inappropriate Halloween costumes. Now they find themselves facing the predatory sadism of Hamas and can't find words to talk about it. These universities have to decide whether or not they're going to have political agendas and take political stances or be more sensible and back off and say people can say what they want, they can't harass anyone else speaking, there can't be violence of any sort, but as an institution we are neutral on public affairs. Well, so far, uh, sometimes silence says all you need to know in terms of in terms of how this this is viewed, at least morally. Um, this, I think, is interesting for the New York Post because money does talk, at least it used to, with these com- colleges. Elite colleges are quietly slashing the level of donations, which can secure a mission as mega donors close their checkbooks to Ivy League over anti-Semitism on campus. Now, according to one college counselor, a two million dollar check might be the new. 20 million. We've seen Bill Ackman at Harvard speak out and rally other donors to stop donating to Harvard. We've seen John Huntsman, uh, who has his name on multiple billions at the buildings at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, pull his funding. Uh, And then these slogans to slaughter Jews were then projected onto the Huntsman building at the University of Pennsylvania. The question is this, why doesn't money seem to matter anymore to the university presidents? Because Penn and Harvard and Yale and Princeton are so ungodly rich, Leland, that it really doesn't matter. Harvard's endowment is approaching, if it hasn't already passed, $50 billion. A $2 billion million contribution doesn't matter to them. Princeton, which has, I think, the largest endowment on a per-student basis, has an endowment of about $34 million. Princeton could run itself without charging tuition, could pay all of its faculty expenses and support all its students just off what the endowment throws off. So when the the alumni say, we're going to close our wallets, Princeton can say, well, we're going to close our minds because it just doesn't matter that much. Well, uh, there's a term for that in terms of of that level of money, that level of rich, and then you can uh, say to the the donors, go go pound sand. (laughs) Look, these university presidents aren't aren't used to being spoken to and questioned. I thought, look, finally a congressional hearing where there were some tough questions asked, a congressional hearing that was illuminating. Uh, this back and forth between uh, Representative McLean and uh, the leader of Harvard. Take a listen. What action was taken from Harvard when a Jewish student was mobbed on your campus last month? Action, not lip service action, ma'am. So this specific incident, um, I've communicated with, I've communicated about publicly. So as you may know, that is an incident that is currently under investigation by HUPD and the yeah, FBI. Any action. And when that, and when action. that investigation is complete, so you can't we will answer. address I'm it through a student disciplinary Do you have an action item or not? We all know that if this had been 2020 and the kid who was surrounded at Harvard and faced chance of threatening to kill this young man had been black and the group surrounding him had been white, rightfully the response of the university would have been very different. 
And my question revolves around this. During BLM, we were told that uh, if you said uh, Black Lives Matter and someone responded, all lives matter, you were missing the point, right? Because uh, Black Lives Matter had a very specific meaning. uh, And in order to appear uh, woke or as an ally or even socially acceptable back then, you had to go along with that. You uh, you couldn't say all lives matter because all lives matter missed the point. Um, And we're seeing that same equivocation now, right? But it's working. Um, Now it's acceptable to condemn all forms of hate, rather than just condemn Jew hate. And I'm wondering, is there any explanation for the double standard other than we're talking about people of the Jewish faith? There is no other explanation. And what you're witnessing, Leland, is the death of something that has prevailed for more than a century. That is government deference to academics. That's over now. Exactly 20 years ago, in the two affirmative action cases that came out of Michigan, the Supreme Court said regarding the law school, we defer to the university's judgment because the universities are run by wise, thoughtful people determined to have institutions that are open to free inquiry. Not anymore. 20 years later, the tone of the questioning in the, in the, the film, you just, the videos you just showed us, indicates that no longer do we think of academics as the high priests of our society, as Justice Felix Frankfurter once referred to them. They're now evaluated as political actors having politicized their institutions and to be treated just as roughly as politics treats everyone else. I'll take a moment of personal liberty uh, on the campus of the University of Alabama when we talked about speaking with the president of the university uh, earlier in the show. I don't know if you saw it, but it was so refreshing for a president of the university to come back and say he didn't want to talk about politics. Uh, he didn't want to talk uh, about taking sides on things. And you, you heard him uh, speak about uh, how important it was to have free speech on his campus and a, a free discussion of ideas. And I don't wonder if now places like the University of Alabama and other schools, I'm thinking about the, the University of Miami uh, that has also taken a strong stand on that. Uh, are not going to see a real influx of students uh, who are interested in those things and are interested in being able to speak their mind. I think that's right. I think university administrators are now understanding how prudent the University of Chicago was more than half a century ago in saying that we and the institutions have no business taking these stands. When Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Dobbs decision, the entire university system of the state of California went on record condemning the opinion. Now, what that said to people in the university was, if you disagree with us, you're really not full members of the University of California community. The University of Alabama is on the cutting edge of going back to the future, back to the more sensible positions of long ago. And by the way, Leland, for many, many years in the North, when Jews were discriminated against in the admissions policies of elite universities, A great many of them went south to the University of Alabama, which was very welcoming to the Jewish students. Well, uh, as you said, the cutting edge of going back to the future, the way things should be. I think you've once uh, quoted somebody saying, I want to go uh, not back to the past, but back to the past's way of dealing with the future. Um, One of my favorite quotes of yours. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you. Uh, We invite you to sign up for War Notes. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m., Go to warnotes.com and subscribe. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the most important stories of the day, the most important perspectives of the day. It's literally how we put the show together. 
Not things we necessarily agree with or disagree with, but a fair look at the most important events of the day. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media anytime at Leland Vittert on Instagram or Twitter. That's warnotes.com and subscribe for free. Coming up next, President Biden opens the door, maybe opens a strong word. He maybe cracks the door to not running for re-election. What he told donors and how tomorrow's debate right here in Tuscaloosa could mean Joe Biden bows out. A look over Bryant-Denny Stadium, home of the Alabama Crimson Tide on a beautiful night in Tuscaloosa. Welcome back here to the quad at the University of Alabama. President Biden uh, has been known to say certain things off camera that he doesn't say on camera. But he said this earlier to donors, not on camera, but somebody from the press heard him. So it went out in what's called the pool note. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win. Hmm. Chris Cuomo is with us now. So two points. One, does that mean if somebody comes out of here tomorrow night with a view of beating Trump, Joe Biden thinks about backing out? And two, doesn't that sort of implicitly say Kamala Harris isn't good enough to beat Donald Trump? Uh, On the second point, I don't think that's where Biden's head was. Um, But I do think it raises the question, why does President Biden still believe he is the best chance to beat Donald Trump? Does that mean that he's not putting any weight in the poll numbers? Are his people not talking to him about that? Are the rumors and reporting that we get that he is actually very much in charge and with a very heavy grip on things so true that no one is questioning uh, his right to another term. You know, I don't, I don't know, Chris. A, a politician with hubris never, never experienced that before in Listen, all my years it, in television. It, it, depending on the circumstances, this could be noble. It could be hubris. Uh, it could be. You, you, you uh, don't think he was delusional. telegraphing something? He is not a subtle guy. Okay, uh, so I think that. I am surprised that Biden hasn't addressed the poll numbers and the rumors and really put his foot down about why he's running and uh, just made a moment of it and then onward. And I think that there's doubt. And I really want to get back to that main question. Who is telling Joe Biden he is the best chance to beat Donald Trump? Hmm. All right. Well, uh, maybe we will find because, out one because day. That's the we'll conceit, see it down right? here. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that, no, the conceit. That's the, the, conceit that, that's the, you, next the Democrats yeah. can't let Trump win. Well, yeah, but everybody's yeah, we got, saying Chris, that that's why they need another run. candidate. Got, anyway, go ahead. I, I never, I never give somebody who's better looking and in better shape and more talented than me advice. But I tell you, for coming down here tomorrow, uh, you'll be here on this set. Bring a coat. Mm. It's not a good look. <laughs> You look great. All right, yeah. you're, you're tougher. You're, you know what? You're tougher than me, too. When we come back, the young voters here at Alabama say they're unlike other young Americans. They're engaged and they're ready to swing elections in new directions. We'll see you back here in Tuscaloosa.
At the University of Alabama, as much of the South, football is a religion into itself. Politics might be a close second. And as the class divide now determines politics like never before, conservatives on college campuses might soon be the topic of a sociology courses as rare species. Rylan Hollyhan, co-chair of the RNC Youth Advisory Council, Ginger Morrow, chair of the University of Alabama College Republicans, Anthony Romano, student here at Alabama. Nice to see you all. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us here. What a beautiful place. Um, Anthony, I want to start with you. You're seeing what's happening up north on college campuses. It's not happening in the south. Um, It's all young people. It's all people sort of of the same generation. It's all people on TikTok. Why is there a difference? I think people respect America more down, down here in the south compared to up north that they respect conservative values and traditional family values. And we need a lot of those same traditions to start to trend up north. And that starts all across social media and all throughout uh, conservative policies, being able to spread to the youth vote. Ginger, young Republicans here on campus, um, we've talked a lot about a split in the Republican Party, Trump Republicans and everybody else. What has to happen tomorrow night for some of those Trump Republicans to move over to the camp of somebody specific of anybody else and start changing the poll numbers? Well, I think that a lot of the candidate policies that we're seeing right now that they're they're touting in these debates are Trump's policies. Um, so I'm not really sure that that's something that's possible. I think hopefully, though, the candidates will um, start to seem a little bit more similar as we go on, and, and especially after we get past that primary. Marlon, you are the ultimate in the future of somebody who cares about what's happening next. I'm wondering if it bothers you, and we just started the show like this, that so much of the Republican Party has become a party of grievance rather than a party of aspirational hope. I see you guys all nodding along. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Leland. Look, we, you know, I'm, like you mentioned at the top, I'm co-chairing the RNC's inaugural Youth Advisory Council. We're honored to be here on the campus of the University of Alabama, my hometown of 17 years now, my whole life. And we're here because young people want to hear a path forward. Look, you know this, the capacity for tomorrow night is 1,000 seats. We had over 7,000 student requests. Young people are eager to hear a path forward, eager to hear about change. So, so, so when we heard, when we saw earlier the polling about an unenthused youth yeah. vote, you don't buy that? Not at all. No. Yeah. Is that, is that true both for conservatives and for Democrats? Yeah, I think so. I think we have, like we see, we have people on both sides of the aisle interested in tomorrow. Yeah. Ginger, you, you made the point, you nodded along when I said the, there's a danger in Republicans becoming a party of, of grievance. You nodded along. Why? I certainly agree with that. And I think that it's because we're a reactionary party. We're looking back at things that have happened in the past and idealizing that. And I think that there are a lot of great things that happened in the past, but we have to evolve and continue answering the call of issues that are happening right now. Anthony, uh, Alabama is a red state, kind of uh, doesn't matter for the general election. Um, are you seeing around, seeing sort of things on this campus that will change the primary? Are there any persuadable young Republican voters? It's half and half, I see. I see that some voters want to get out and really fight for conservative values and want to work to get a Republican in office, while others are still scared of potentially not getting a job one day because they're wanting to fight for conservative values. And that So you're a senior, right? Yes. So, in Ginger, what year are you? I'm a senior, too. And there's really concern that if you post on social media and you speak out 
about conservative values that you won't get jobs? I think so. I'm, I'm sure you feel that way, too. And um, luckily, I want to work in conservative politics, so that's not a super huge concern for me. But a lot of my college Republican uh, members agree with that. Wow. Well, thank you all. You guys got a front seat to history. I remember my first debate as a young man at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, tomorrow's going to be a special night. We appreciate it. It's good to see you all. Thank you very much. All right, we all agree on that. 24 hours away from News Nation's debate.